Welcome to the Edge of the Wild podcast. Once you start this journey, there is no telling what may happen. There are no safe paths in this part of the world. Remember, you are over the edge of the wild now and in for all sorts of fun wherever you go. Welcome to Edge of the Wild Podcast. I'm excited to introduce you to a good friend of mine, Brother Tim Lucan. We're actually in situ right now at Five Lows Pantry, which is a ministry that Brother Tim has been running for 13 years, I believe, in the Newport News, Virginia area. Wanted to introduce you to him as you can hear more about this great work that's happening here. But first, I always like to go to people's backstories. So, Brother Tim, you are a Buckeye, as am I, uh, hailing from Cincinnati, Ohio. Give us a little bit of your early years in Cincinnati. Um, I think the thing that most formed me was my mom and my dad. My dad was Roman Catholic. My mom was Presbyterian. Dad was 12 years older than my mom. And in 1960s, and I was born in 63, that was pretty uncommon. Not as much leeway as there is today. But my dad had been married before my mom. And Pat and my dad married for the intent reason of of they loved each other and they wanted to have a big family. And it didn't happen in three years. So Pat became ensconced in her job. And dad wanted a family, so they divorced. When dad met my mom, he remarried, but he was not allowed to do so in the Catholic Church. They just don't believe in divorce back then like they do these days. So he married my mom in the Presbyterian Church, but with the understanding that they would raise the kids and the family would be Roman, Catholic. So... I was raised by a father who was unable to partake of the sacraments, and my mother could not partake of the sacraments. And yet we went through Catholic grade school and high school. I have seven younger sisters, and it was very difficult to have my first communion and not be able to receive the sacrament with my parents, like everybody else did. And it wasn't just me, it was all my sisters. And during Lent, as a family, we would go to 6.30 Mass every day, in the morning, before work, before school. My father's faith was that strong, and my mother loved my father that much, that that's how we were raised. And (coughs) it was to the point where before mom and dad even married, he spoke with her parents, my grandparents, and my grandmother was an organist at a Presbyterian church. My great-grandfather was a pastor at a Presbyterian church. And my grandparents agreed that whenever we were with them, they would see to it that we were at a Catholic church on Sunday. Hmm. And it was very odd to have to watch 
your parents not be able to enjoy the sacrament and the blessings that we kids did, and yet we were still there every week. Um, it was. It, I think that shaped me more than anything else. My father had his first marriage annulled when I was 15. And he married my mother in the Catholic Church. And it was funny because once the tribunal had convened and granted the annulment, our priest said to my mom, you know, I don't think you have to go through formation. You've already raised six kids through <laughs> yeah. their first communion. Five of us had already been confirmed or were working on confirmation. So um, I don't think you need that, Sue. So when they were married... Mom actually received her first communion and was confirmed as well. And Dad was reinstated. And I think that laid the foundation for a true faith. And had somebody in my private high school or had reached out to me, I probably would be a Roman Catholic priest right now. But nobody ever pursued it. Nobody ever spoke to me about a vocation. Uh -huh. So, I ended up leaving and joining the Navy. Uh, well, and that's kind of why you're tied to this area still today, I, I, I would guess, because you actually came down this way towards Norfolk, yep. Virginia. I was stationed down here in the Navy for a while, went up to Bethesda, and then came back down here again. And my father died when I was 21, and I went home for a couple of years, but then I came back out here because this was the area I knew. Mm -hmm. And I've pretty much lived out here ever since. So how long were you in the Navy? I was in for four years. Okay. Um, but when I went home, um, my dad had died, and I thought I needed to be the man of the family since I had seven younger sisters, and for a while I was there... And I looked at Roman Catholic priesthood, but I lacked stability. I mean, I had been moving around in the Navy. I didn't have a steady job, just moved again, which made sense. And I went to college, and I started to realize that there was a social life out there that I'd not here to partaken in. And so I decided I did not want to be a priest at that point. I wa wanted to have fun. And, the perception was priests don't have fun, I guess. Catholic well, you, <laughs> yeah, you don't go out drink and party, and so I did, but um, I also became a witch okay. in Wicca and was involved in Wiccan um, witchcraft for 15 years. Did that um, begin while you were back home in Cincinnati? That I was introduced to it then, okay. but I didn't really become full-fledged involved with it until I moved out here. Back to Virginia. Back to Virginia. Just kind of pausing on the story for a second. What is it in your own journey, or maybe your own interests, that would have led you to explore uh, Wiccan? You know, to explore freedom. Okay, tell us a little bit more about that. Um, Wicca teaches that if you harm no one, do what you will, and they believe in like karma. The law of threefold. If you do something good, it'll come back to you good three times over. You do something bad, it'll come back to you three times over. And that freedom exists to do what you want. Um, and people's definition of what's good and bad 
it's different, you know. Um, I met a lot of people that lived alternate lifestyles, uh, unique lifestyles and situations, and that's why they embrace witchcraft. Um, you don't meet many people who are church wounded through witchcraft. Um, they're not really judgmental. Um, they're accepting of just about anything, which may not necessarily be a good thing, but at that time, that's what I wanted. So it almost sounds like, and forgive me if I put words in your mouth, that looking at the priesthood was juxtaposed to exploring becoming a, a, a Wiccan priest. Yep. Or, yeah. So. I knew when I was 18, 19, I had a calling. Okay. What kind of a calling? To monastic life, to living in community. Okay. Um, to work in a community to do God's work. So as a witch, I believe I was still doing God's work. Okay. In a community. Okay. Although it wasn't a residential community at the time. It was a body of believers. So you did not see witchcraft as being in opposition to God and his work in the world? Nope. Okay. Now, a lot of people would say we're Satanists. I would tell you there's no way we could be. Satan's a Christian construct. Okay. I mean, after all, is another name for Satan is the Antichrist. Well, we didn't acknowledge Christ, so why would we acknowledge an antichrist? Sure. No, I, I get that. And just for a little bit more clarification, I, I've heard you refer to yourself um, as having been a witch. Why witch versus maybe some other phrases that some people might be familiar with, like warlock or... That's Hollywood. Is that Hollywood? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, witch, Wicca, comes from the Saxon word meaning to worship at the hearth. So, for example, I, I like to tell people, um, right now I've got a little congestion from the allergies, okay? But let's say I had a cold, all right? And somebody came to me and they described their symptoms and it was a cold, and they asked me if I could work a healing potion. I would put something together. I would want to involve the four elements because that's what our body's made out of. Earth, fire, fire, earth, water, fire, and air are what our bodies are made out of. Um, we understand that in all faith groups. So I might want to start a kettle and put some water in it and dump in some earth. Um, maybe use the bones of a winged creature to throw in there for air. And for fire, I'm heating the water. I've got dirt, earth in there, and so all my elements are there. And I would stir it, and while I'm stirring it, I'm working a spell. And when I finish, I give you the potion to drink. When you say spell, uh, an incantation of some kind. Yep. Specific words for specific purpose. Right. And when you took that spell, and you drank that potion, um, I could have very simply just told you it was Campbell's chicken soup. Mm -hmm. That's all it was. <laughs> okay. Chicken wings, chicken bones, yeah. salt, yeah. water, heated. Sure. 
And as a Christian, I can do the same mix, and instead of invoking a, a spell, ask God's blessing upon it to heal the person who receives it. Yeah. My mind is just cast back to uh, words, word meanings, their significance and power, but uh, the, their beginnings. And I really enjoy exploring words and their meanings. I'm thinking of, in the Christian context, the word gospel. And understanding that it comes <coughs> from uh, a much older uh, phrasing of God's spell. You're talking about spells. Right. And we're talking about then as believers, as Christians, um, in a sense, invoking God's spell. Well, and the thing is, is the history of the Roman Church, of which we as Anglicans come from, involved a lot of God's spell. St. Augustine was told by Gregory the Great, when you're in England, take their holy places and make them our holy places. Take their gods and goddesses and make them our saints. Take their holy days and make them our holy days. I mean, that's the easiest explanation to understand why we have an egg on Easter. The celebration of Christ's resurrection, why are we doing it in conjunction with the fertility festival? Because we were trying to absorb their pagan beliefs into our Christian beliefs. But even more so than this, if you look at the old church, the ancient church, they use the four elements at the table. Or, as the Roman Catholics would say, the altar. Air, fire, water, earth. They used holy water. In fact, if you look at some of the older prayer books, I know Anglicans these days that make holy water just think it's water. But if you look at the 1928 and older prayer books... They call upon the person of the salt in the water to make holy water. Then they sense the altar, which by itself is fire and air. And they sense this altar starting in the east and ending in the east. Which is how we would do it in the pagan realm. You start in the east because that's where the sun rises. And in the East, when I was a pagan, when I was a witch, I would call upon the angel Gabriel, the herald. Because that's his quadrant, is the East. And his color is green, liturgical, in the East. Then you would move to the South. Yeah. Fire, Michael, warring angel, red. Then you move to the west, Raphael, healing, blue, water. Then you move to the north, Uriel, death, black. Not death is in cessation of life, but is in a change of life. Mm -hmm. And then you come back to east again. And that's how you sense an altar. Start in the east. You do the outside, and then you do the altar, because you're cleansing that sacred space of all negativity. Yeah. 
it's uh, interesting. You said earlier that um, in Wicca that wouldn't have, you wouldn't have acknowledged Satan or Christ, but yet angels. It sounds like would have. But um, to actually take a step to the side here, you've mentioned a few times you being Anglican. Mm-hmm. I am as well. Um, we I haven't uh, shared a whole lot about that on the podcast. So just to give a little bit of, of context for those of you who might be listening and have no idea what Anglican is, at least in North American context, a lot of times when I'm in, I'll mention being an Anglican um, or somebody else attempts to make reference to it, they'll say Angelican, you know, get a little bit confused about the phrase. Uh, but just a, a little bit of history on that. The Anglican Church was one of the first Reformational churches. That That is the period um, in the 16th century that... Um, came out of the Roman Catholic Church uh, beginning in Europe, and the Anglican Church specifically had its origins in what we now know as England, and that was under uh, the reign of King Henry VIII. Um, Anglicans are, some say, um, in conjunction with the Lutheran Church, the third largest Christian tradition in the world, roughly 80 million people worldwide. And in North America, um, just to help people understand a bit more, the historical expression of Anglicanism has largely been known as the Episcopal Church. There have been numerous offshoots from that over the decades, but in recent years, uh, a newer movement has emerged called the Anglican Church in North America, of which Brother Tim and I are both a part. If you'd like to know more about Anglicanism, uh, you can go firstly to um, a book that um, Brother Tim referenced called the Book of Common Prayer, which really is kind of our rhythm and cadence in our worship and how we gather as God's people. That's a good place to explore. Do you have any other Well, comments? do you know why it's called the Episcopal Church in the United States and not Anglican? I do know, but tell us. Well, I think it's important to understand that in 1776, the colonials were rebelling against King George, who was not only king, but was head of the Anglican Church. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason was because we as Anglicans believe in apostolic succession. Which is? It's the passing down of the keys and the promises from Christ to Peter on down. And because of this, we owe our tithes to the bishop who is the one that ordains the priests and we hold their churches, we do the churches and their steeds. So the people in the United States were sending money over to England and had to go all the way to England to become ordained. And so another reason why we rebelled was because we wanted our own bishops to ordain our own people and to keep our money in the States. So when the rebellion happened, we severed ourselves from England itself through that rebellion but we were brought up, taken under Scotland. And that's, that's why here in Virginia, the Scottish Episcopal Church is so strong. But here's what I find very, very ironic. A number of years ago, when our faith, the Anglican Church of North America, came away, because we're standing on the sanctity and the truth of the Bible, it also happened in Scotland, and we're now providing Episcopal bishop covering to those in Scotland. Spiritual oversight or spiritual covering or authority. Correct. Yeah. 
So what they gave to us, it's now our turn to give back to them. Yeah. I just think that is pure God, pure amazing, pure holy. Yeah, it's it's interesting when we look back in history how the Spirit of God has moved and how people have responded or ignored God's promptings. Um, certainly even in the last, you know, what, 13 years since the ACNA, the Anglican Church of North America has been established. Um, and this feels as if this this is a significant season and to be able to be in the middle of what's happening right now um, is exciting. Hey friends, let me take this opportunity to say thank you for your encouragements regarding Edge of the Wild podcast thus far. It's my great privilege to be on this journey with you as we discover unexplored territory together. If you wouldn't mind to take one minute to review the podcast on whichever platform you listen to it on and leave a rating for us. That helps to get the word out further afield and invites more people to join us as we journey together. If you have any suggestions or critical feedback, I welcome them. Please email me at edgeofthewildpodcast at gmail.com and I will read those and take those into consideration as we continue to develop the podcast. If you'd like to go beyond the Edge of the Wild, further in and further up, so to speak, you can support us financially with whatever amount you'd like, either a one-time gift or reoccurring gift, through our parent organization site that is Soul Friend. The URL there is artistsoulfriend.com. That's A-R-T-I-S-T-S-O-U-L-F-R-I-E-N-D dot C-O-M, where you can make a secure donation. Also, you will find us on Patreon at Edge of the Wild Podcast, and I'll be continuing to develop that platform for the podcast as we continue. So first of all, and uh, most of all, let me say thank you again. I am very grateful to be here with you, and your support means everything. The best is yet to come. So you had mentioned that you um, had been in the Navy, gone back to Ohio, Cincinnati, had become interested uh, in uh, witchcraft, and had then come back to mm-hmm. the Newport News or Norfolk area and become more involved in that. You said you were involved for 15 or so years. 15 years. What transpired then over that time period and, and following? Um, I became... So I was always the good kid growing up. Didn't drink, didn't smoke, didn't do drugs. What wasn't what I was interested in. And I was 38, and I became involved using a drug called ecstasy. And back then, which would have been 2000, 2001, I would tell you that that was the worst drug. The, you want to talk gateway drug, it's ecstasy. And the reason why, because it's a pill, as opposed to marijuana, which was a cigarette, Okay. Everybody takes pills. And I don't know who developed the street drug ecstasy, but they made it look like a vitamin. And in my mind, a pill implied a certain safety and efficacy, a certain um, cleanliness behind it, because it was a pill. You just can't press a pill in your own house. And the fact was, they came in all shapes and sizes. And as a kid, I had Flintstone vitamins. They looked just like it. Whoever did it was brilliant in their marketing. And so I got involved in using ecstasy. 
And that led me to trying a drug called Foxy. Long story short, I started selling it. But Foxy was yet to be classified or scheduled. But they needed to get it off the street, so we arrested. And we were tried under a federal law called the Drug Analog Act, which, which was like a mimic. Um, and I ended up going to jail for three years. Now, I would never, ever want to go back again, but I do not regret me spending three years in federal prison. Where was that? Um, I started here in jail, and then I went to FCI Beckley in West Virginia. I was there for three years. And the reason why I say that is, there's an old adage, and during my time in the Navy, I'd spent some time in the Independent Baptist Church for a while. So, there's an adage that says, sometimes God will throw you on your back in order to get you to look up. And when you're in prison, first time, and I had never even had a speeding ticket at that point, um, you reach. You reach for God. Wake up call. Of a yeah. yeah. And I remember getting on my knees and saying to God, hey, sorry. I really screwed up my life trying to run it. If you want me, I'm still here. But you know how it is. I need to be hit with a 4x4 because a 2x4 just doesn't work. And God got my attention and I came back. So while I was in prison, I had the opportunity to complete 132 correspondence courses while I was in prison. That's all I did for three years was study the Bible. Whether it was Focus on the Family, uh, Josh McDowell, uh, Alistair Begg, I would write the radio shows and say, listen, I'm in prison. Is there any way somebody would sponsor me with the current text? And I would listen to these shows all day long. Um, I got my own room. I became the senior orderly of my unit, and we became blessed by God. I had Joseph's blessing is what I was told, and I've come to realize I did. I was in a program unit, I was 10 years older than everybody else, and I was responsible for most of them. Um, and when I got out, I looked for a way to live a monastic life, but the Catholic Church wanted nothing to do with me. Um, they were undergoing their own investigations because of the sex crimes and all that, so I understood. But I knew that God had called me to serve. So it was just a matter of finding a place. And when, what year was that that you got out? Uh, 2004. Okay. And when you got out and left Beckley, where did you head? Oh, they bring you back to where you were. Okay. okay. So I was back here in Norfolk, Newport News area. Okay. And you're standing there wondering what's next. Yep. So what transpired? Um, I kept looking, kept looking, and then one day I found this intentional living site. I mean, I was at the point where I was prepared to go overseas, if I could. And I found this intentional living site that wasn't just religious communities. There were also, like, hippie communities, things held in common for organic living, that type of thing. And I found that not even... 15 miles away from me was this group called Livingstone Monastery in Newport News. So I did some research in it, 
found out it was being run by a Southern Baptist church. And when I returned to Christ, I thought it meant I was Roman. Ah, okay. So there was a big battle. Because this, this was your origin story, the Roman church, right. the Catholic church. Yeah. Okay. And I prayed, you know, then, what, what was I when I was Christian? Was I Baptist? Was I Catholic? What was I? So I studied Catholicism with a very strong Protestant influence. And so when I found this place, I was like, no, 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 I'm Roman Catholic. You don't want me to go to a Southern Baptist. No, 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 no. God and I argued. And finally, one night in a fit of anger, it was a Sunday night, because that's when God and I had time to really delve into each other. I wrote an email saying, Dear Sirs, how do you feel about non-proselytizing Catholics? Signed, Tim Lucan. <laughs> and I remember hitting send, looking up to heaven and going, There, I wrote, okay? Leave me alone. Yeah. <laughs> and then a couple of days later, I got a response saying, Well, we don't hate Catholics. Would you like to come visit? Yeah. And so I did. And the rest is history. So that's when you um, really entered into monastic life in some capacity. Yeah, because it wasn't a traditional uh, monastic life as some people think. Um, it was a little bit more fraternal, a little bit more community, and not as prayer related. Okay. Um, but when I came in, the abbot at the time, and I thought I was going to be Southern Baptist, said, no, 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 I'd like you to check out this Anglican church. So I checked it out. I went to service like three times, and I was like, okay, this is scary like Catholic. I mean, it's the same phrases, the same responses. What is going on here? And I can remember sitting down with the pastor and saying, listen, uh, what's the difference between you and Catholics? Roman Catholics. Yeah, yeah. And he said, well, the Pope. <laughs> you were right there. Okay. And I said, yeah, you ain't done much for me lately either, so I'm okay on that one. What's the other one? He said, well, Mary. I said, yeah, I think Catholics have a tendency to go overboard on that one, but I believe the core teachings. And he said, well, the third one would be the sacraments. We acknowledge baptism and communion, but the other ones are not as important because they weren't really Christ-created, Christ-initiated. Yeah. And I went, that's it? And he went, yeah, that's it. And I said, you know what? I think I can go with that. Mm -hmm. And so I did some more studying and joined the Anglican Church. And what year would that have been? Roughly? 2009. Okay. So we were under EMEA back then. Yeah. And that's about the time you started the work that you're still involved in today. It was. So tell us a little bit about that. Um, when I came on board, the abbot looked at me and said, listen, we got uh, Sister Janet. She's getting old. Um, she runs the food pantry and she does bookkeeping. You're qualified to do either. Whichever she doesn't want, you get the other. She didn't want to do the lifting anymore, so I took over the food pantry. And for three weeks, four weeks, I cried every night. It was just one night a week. But I cried because, honestly, at that time, I was stuck in, before it even evolved, critical race theory. I felt guilty because I was the white guy that put the black guy in the position to need to get food. And here I was, black people had to come to the white guy to get the food. 
And I just couldn't cope with that. And eventually I realized I was wrong. Um, and they no longer were clients. They're now my family. Um, I've probably done more funerals than many priests of my same priestly age. Um, I can remember reaching out to my bishop and saying, listen, I'm being asked to do a funeral. And he says, yep, you don't say no. And I was like, what? He says, as long as you're under me, you do every funeral that you're asked to do. Wow. And I've done the most unusual, had the most unusual, um, but that's what I'm there for. Well, that's all telltale. It's indicative of the depth of relationship you've established with people in this area since you began this food pantry ministry, again, 13 years ago, right, 2009. Yeah. You know, and to be invited into someone's life at that level and asked, you know, not because you're just the available local priest to do it, but because you know one another, to ask to honor or commemorate someone's life is, is significant. Truly it is, so... So you, you you took on the food pantry side of things. Right. Um, for a food pantry that already had existed. Right. Okay. They did a hot meal and bread one night a week. Okay. And so um, tell us now where we're at. Well, we now do five distributions a week. Uh, well, five days a week, and we do double distributions on Tuesday. So Monday through Friday, 11 to 1, and Tuesday evening, 5.30 to 7. Prior to COVID... Our Tuesday nights would be about 160 families. About three to 400 people came through for a hot meal and received groceries. Because of COVID, things have really been shaken up. We've changed the way that we've done things. So we do about 40 to 60 families a day, including Tuesday evening. So in a year, we do about 1,800 to 2,000 families. We run a $1.2 million ministry that's taking into account all the donated food, time, and space, and we operate on forty thousand dollars. It's been amazing, friends. I mean, we've been here with actually some of our young people from around our network of churches called a diocese, and uh, we've been here for uh, well a week as of tomorrow, and it has been a inspiring, challenging, a very engaging experience for all of us on the team. The, the few leaders, myself included, and our teens, I know that they will remember this their whole lives. I know I will, and uh, have been really excited to be able to participate here with Brother Tim and, and this ministry of just blessing people, it's just practical demonstrations of God's love for people. So um, tell, tell us a little bit about how people can find out more about this ministry? Well, we're on Facebook. All you got to do is look up Five Loose Food Pantry. You'll find us there. You can send a text message that way. We've got a website, fivelosefoodpantry.org. Um, Livingstone Monastery has its own website, livingstonemonastery.org. You can also find us on Facebook as well. Excellent. Now you yourself, you have a, a, couple, a number of titles. Most people around here, including myself, call you Brother Tim. Give us the rest of your titles that have been given you, and then I want to segue into a community that you're part of. Um, well, I am now the leader of our community, so that gives me the ability to be called the Very Reverend. Um, my title is Abbot General, 
and I am father, and they like to call me Timothy to call me out. Mm -hmm. So I'm the very Reverend uh, Abbot General Father Timothy. Yeah, quite a mouthful. I don't like it. (laughs) I'd rather be known as Brother Tim because, frankly, that's what I was at the beginning. Titles are good, but people become wrapped up in them. Now, the members of our community know to use titles to clue me in on what they're coming to me for. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if they're coming to me because they have a pastoral issue, it's Father Tim. If they're coming to me because it's an administrative issue within the community, it's Abbott. We don't do the very reverend. <laughs> I get it. I'm not big on titles personally either, so I'm still trying to get used to it when people decide they'd like to use it, but I'm a first-name guy. Um, so tell, tell us a little bit about this community that you're part of, the Company of Jesus. So the Company of Jesus was started 35 years ago as the Benedictine community after St. Benedict, who was commonly known as the founder of monastic life. Um, after about 15 years, we were asked to give shelter to some Franciscans, so we became dual stream. But the thing that was unique about us even then was we weren't traditional in the fact that we had men, single men, single women, couples, where one was Benedictine and Francis, the other was Franciscan, or um, one member of the couple and we need to stop. So we have people where both couples are members, single member of the couples are members, and we even have instances where both couples and their mature children are also members. And that doesn't happen in Franciscan structure or in Benedictine structure. So I started to search a little bit and realized that what we were was Celtic. So, three years ago, we moved our order from Benedictine and Franciscan into Celtic, and we've been existing there since. What does that mean, though? I mean, people will probably be more familiar, if they're familiar at all, with monastic life, with Franciscan and Benedictine. But Celtic, tell us a little bit more about that. How did you know? What were the characteristics? So, Celtic is ancient. Um, We're talking 2,000 years ago, and to this point, Catholic boy, I always thought Celtic meant Benedictine, which is what the Celtic religion became absorbed into, was Benedict in about 700-800 AD. Prior to that, the Celtic Christians had their own brand of Christianity. And it was, again, that melding that we talked about earlier between nature and Nature, spirituality, nature, and, and, and true godly spirituality. They have a balance between themselves within nature. Um, understand that, that in the early church, literacy didn't exist. Yeah. So you would learn about God through life, through creation. Creation testifies to us about the greatness of God. We learn about seasons. We learn about life. We learn about death. We learn about living and dying. 
that, that there are seasons of both. And, and we learn about balance. We learn about harmony. We learn about peace through the nature that's around us. We learn about our place in that. And that's what makes Celtic so unique and different. They, they strove to have a balance between service and prayer. Franciscans are traditionally service-oriented with prayer. Benedictines are traditionally contemplative prayer with service. But there's still an emphasis over one or the other. But within Celtic, it's a balance between the two. Because you can't have one without the other. It's the same thing here within our community. I could not begin to do the service that I do at the food pantry if it wasn't for the spiritual support that I gained from prayer. And that's why we have guest room. One guest room is able to hold six people because we're not a retreat center. We are a place where people can come spend some time in service or in prayer to get to know God, to embrace. And here's the thing. People don't realize that I said this when you're when the youth first got here. We're not just a food pantry. Just is such a limiting word in what we do. What we do, they're my family. We celebrate life. We celebrate death. We rejoice together. The first day your kids were here, they were near on traumatized with the amount of traumatic stories, the traumatic things that we had to deal with that day. A 10-year-old boy who had attempted, attempted suicide twice and would have succeeded the second time if it wasn't for the paramedics. For a hospital administrator fired from their job because they refused to get vaccinated. I mean, we deal with cancer. We deal with sickness upon sickness and most of our people are church wounded and they come here they know that I'm a monk they know that I'm their brother and I take an interest in them and I love them they're my family you know I wear a tattoo that says a member of every family yet belongs to none and it comes from a much larger poem that ends, oh, what a life, and tis thine, O priest of Jesus Christ, by Le Cordaire. And that's what priesthood is about. Priesthood is to be a part of every family in existence, yet we really don't belong. We're set aside by God to be holy. And that's what we try to do here. So if somebody would like to experience maybe serving a community uh being a part of an, an intentional christian community in terms of study worship prayer service what would a that experience look like in a week here at the monastery well they could come in and they could contact us on our facebook page company of jesus they can go online company of jesus.org our handbooks there uh, although not everybody living in the monastery is involved in the company. Laity 
people that are not clergy can come and stay with us for a season, and they embrace our daily schedule of prayer, service, and yet they still have half a day that they can study, relax, they can visit the historical sites of Jamestown, Yorktown, and Williamsburg. Um, there's many, many components, but all they got to do is reach out to us through Facebook, open up a conversation. We would love to have high school students when they turn 18 that don't know what they're going to do. Come on down and spend your gap year with us. Spend six months, spend a year. Maybe you're from college. You're trying to find a job. Maybe you're pursuing a degree, but you're doing it virtually. Why not do service in the morning and then pursue your degree in the afternoon? There's a lot of options, a lot of variables, but the key thing is you need to pray about it and see if this is what God has in store for you. Well, I think you've answered the question I was prepared to ask you as we close, and that was what advice would you offer those out there who are inspired by your story and want to explore doing what you do? So let me uh, finish with this question for you. What is the next adventure ahead of you? What do you sense God doing just, just ahead that he's inviting you into? Well, almost a year ago, I suffered dual stroke. And I've had a miraculous recovery. I don't exhibit any of the signs of having had a stroke. And I believe that what I'm doing now is preparing to leave. I think God created me to establish this house, get it up, get it running, headed in the right direction, because he's got something more for me to do with him in heaven. Well, we don't want you to, to leave too quickly. There's still a lot of work to be done, and we're grateful, certainly, for um, the work God's called you to. It's both inspiring and challenging, I'd say, to those of us who've heard and now experienced it and um, want to continue, uh, no matter what manifestation it takes, what, what form of service it takes, but that same life of pouring yourself out uh, for the, the good of others. Uh, of course, uh, Jesus is our lead in all this, looking to him for that inspiration. Amen. But uh, thank you so much for your time, Brother Tim. I look forward to um, inviting other people to explore this and to get in touch. So please do. If you are interested, reach out to Brother Tim uh, via the Company of Jesus, Five Loaves Pantry, Livingstone Monastery, through all the ways he's already shared. And um, send him a note. Just uh, ask him questions or um, let him know that you're praying or maybe even your desire to get involved at a distance through giving. You can do all the above. And uh, I know he'd also welcome visitors. He has had quite a few this week while we've been here. So thanks again for your time, Brother Tim. You're welcome. Thank you. Blessings. I hope this episode of the Edge of the Wild podcast challenged and inspired you. For more information on this episode, please see our show notes. If you'd like to know more about our sponsoring organization, Soul Friend, and its related services and events, please visit artistsoulfriend.com. My name is Shane Tucker, and the best is yet to come. The quote in the podcast intro is from J.R.R. Tolkien's renowned work, The Hobbit, or There and Back Again, published in 1937.